So on today's show, the theme is everyday heroes. And of course, on this show, when I say everyday heroes, I'm talking about black women. So the first clip I have is going to be of Congresswoman Maxine Waters, or as I like to affectionately call her, Mama Maxine. She is my political hero right now. There is no other woman on the planet dragging the absolute shit out of the current administration like she is. I respect her to death and we need to protect her at all costs. Next, I speak to Diane, who's from a company called Black Proverbs, and she has a clothing and accessory business that she built by herself. And it really highlights, you know, our thoughts and feelings as a community, but she does it in black and white. It's fantastic. You should check out her website. I then have an interview with author Brooke Obi, who wrote the book of Addis, Cradle Embers, which is an extraordinary story about a young lady named Addis, who in one terrifying moment becomes an unexpected hero. Finally, I will be sharing some alternatives to Shea Moisture. And I have a personal shout out to a young lady named Isha Johnson. Now, Isha uh, went viral recently because she had a, a really uh, compelling and um, thoughtful response to a comedian who made a joke, and I put that in real thick quotations, about black women that just wasn't funny. I hope you enjoy it. So one of the reasons why I even approached Chris about Secret Sauce was because of the election and it was amazing to me that as a group, we as a group voted 94% for a woman maybe we don't like, but we could respect. And we knew better than most that we knew better than most that she would be a better representative of the country than the mustard Mussolini that we have in office now. And anytime a black woman is out there fighting our causes, speaking our truths, she'll be on this show. If it's up to me, we talking about her. So today, we're going to talk about Miss Maxine, Mama Maxine. I respect her enormously. And I'm so happy that, <laughs> and it's so apropos, right? That it's a black woman out here fighting for us. She speaks our truth and I want her to be heard, period, point blank. So I'm going to play this moment that she had. She was giving it to him unflinchingly on a show that really isn't friendly to her. It's on, uh, what's this full show called Morning Joe? And he's a complete jackass himself. But she didn't care. She talked about Trump with a smile. And she didn't care how that other chickie was looking at her. I love it. 
So I'm going to play her moment. No, I wasn't at the inauguration speech, and I've not been at any of the ceremonial activities with this president. Yeah, and, and the reason why it wasn't a sign of disrespect from what I heard, you said that you wanted to be respectful and that you might uh, get a little emotional and, and might <laughs> shout something out. No, 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 no. It's not that. It's just that I don't honor him. I don't respect this president. Yes. I don't think that um, he deserves to be president of this great country. I um, am very concerned about him, and I really think he's dangerous. And, uh, Joe, I don't know if you've seen the six-part series that the L.A. Times wrote about him. It is scathing. I've never seen editorials like this before in my life. And so, you know, we continue to talk about him as if this is normal. Mika, this is abnormal, what we're experiencing with uh, this president. And I uh, have taken him on, as you know, and the millennials have joined me. Mm -hmm. And so I continue uh, to talk about his ties to Russia and what I think all of that means. And uh, as you know, I've continued to talk about, I believe, that if we have the credible investigations, that it will lead to his impeachment. So I believe that. So she is a national treasure. Mama Maxine. So my guest for today is Diane, and she is from Black Proverbs, and she calls it, what she calls her business is a t-shirt line that's grown up to be a full product line, and I kind of want Diane to explain it to all of us. So Diane, are you there? I am. Hi. Hello. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so happy. Like, the sun is shining. It's a good day. <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. At least... Hey, look, at least it's shining for you because right now it's dreary and ugly and raining in Atlanta. So oh, no, <laughs> I'm glad somebody's got some form of sun. Okay. Yeah, it's beautiful out here in Chicago land. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, well, I am a 27 year grad. Um, pursuing my master's in entrepreneurship, I run Black Proverbs, and I've been doing that since June 2014. Okay. Um, yeah, so quite a while. Um, and I'm a youth instructor for St. Joseph's Services, so I kind of do a few things right now. Okay. Yeah. I understand that. The jack of all trades. I get that. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about what Black Proverbs is. Um, so Black Proverbs is a blog that started out of a joke. <laughs> uh, what was going around this blog site called Tumblr was like things that black people commonly say. Uh, and somebody was like, for 2013, somebody should put this all in one blog. And I was that one bored person that did it. <laughs> um, and then a few months later, it just developed a viral blog following and became sort of an ethnography, a collection of like black language um, that everybody contributed to. Um, and it was just, it, it just grew overnight. And a year later, I decided to, you know, start a business. That's it. Um, so what black, I decided, uh, so that's where the black proverb thing come from. But like it's labeled BLK mm -hmm. uh, because I wanted to associate some positive connotations with the word black. Mm -hmm. And it stands for beauty, love, and knowledge. Um, because 
I would tell people I'm black and they would say like, no, say African-American, like black is a dirty word. Like, no, I'm black. <laughs> right. Um, and it's not a dirty word. Um, so that's where it comes from for me. Cause I believe, you know, like my black is beautiful. My black is loving and my black is knowledgeable. And that keeps me loving myself. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's the brand. That's what it came from. I love that. That. That's something that we need. We need those positive, you know, affirmations for ourselves because, you know, yeah, they use black, the word black as a negative word any other time. You know, it's a dark night. The night is black. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, I don't feel good. I'm feeling, you know, I'm feeling dark and moody. And, you know, the word black is used so negatively. So it's good that there is a business like yours where it's used in a more positive fashion. I respect that. Yeah. So. Tell me how black women kind of influence you in your business. <laughs> black women give me so much joy. Like nobody going to gas you up like another black woman. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Like you'll see someone else on the street. They'll say, you look nice. You see a black woman. She go, yes, honey, you doing it out here. Like, <laughs> no, you did it. Just stun on all of us. Like, what are you doing today? Like, you just decided to wake up and shit on everybody else. You know what I'm saying? Like, it turns into that a whole tirade. So you know what I'm saying? Like, Absolutely. no one gives praise like us. No one loves and laughs like us. You know, like, I was at a... Um, bar last night with my line sisters and like we're the loudest laughing ones in there of course like the stereotype always goes but hey like you know that we're out here living and loving each other like intensely and like I really make choices centered around whether a black woman is going to be there or not <laughs> that's what I'm talking like, about like they're just affirming in so many ways like um, it's just a sisterhood and we know in being that like nobody really cares for us like we do that's it's right just, it's just gives me such joy and like that sort of motivation um or i take into the business with me um because like when i went to a pwi with all those other people who didn't look like me i had never missed home so much i didn't know that like being around people that look like me gave me that much joy being able to talk with people that sound like me gave me that much comfort like i just didn't know that i had this distinct culture this distinct sisterhood even um and so it just gives me joy that I have like I'm having this conversation with black people with this business it's something that they specifically relate to that's why I choose phrases that we've been saying since forever as opposed to like what's popular and watered down by the media now um I just you know what I'm saying like the only thing I have to do is stay black and die we've been saying since forever that's on one of my shirts <laughs> um it's just that type of black that I love intensely. I love being black. I say it all day. Yes, girl. And I'm looking at your page. You've got some great stuff out here. Like I'm feeling this three wishes coffee mug, like for real. <laughs> <laughs> so this three wishes coffee mug says I'd spend all three wishes wishing a nigga would. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. That's look. <laughs> You get the slow clap for that one. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I spend all day doing that. Um, another one that's really good is Ain't Nobody Asked You. Absolutely. Uh, that's my favorite. I really 
<laughs> honestly, like, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I'm feeling that. I'm feeling that. Now I see here that you have a Black Proverbs Fist T-shirt. Mm-hmm. So this Fist T-shirt does it have like all kinds of things that we say to each other or we say to other people? What What was the meaning behind this this Black Fist? Um, it was just like I kind of was like, let me list or think about all the words that I think of when I think of being black like what gives me that sort of comfort what connects me to black um and i just sort of just threw all those words in a cloud and put it on the fist because i you know like that's a common united connected Mm -hmm. that's a sign uh, for us visual cue Mm -hmm. yeah um so i you know and i think about the word mama being on there (laughs) in that word cloud Mm -hmm. um but the ma- the black matriarch is like very integral to the black community, like um, church mothers and all that, like that. You know, we stand on that. It's a very strong cornerstone. So many people come back to that um, in so many ways. If you don't have anybody, you got mama. You know, uh, but yeah, that's where that fist comes from. Mm-hmm. Black comfort, that idea. I love it. You even have one here. Um, the, of course you've got the beauty love knowledge and I love that that's a really cute shirt because um, I live in t-shirts to be honest I do I do I live in t-shirts and jeans if I can get away with it um, I do too <laughs> mm-hmm, and the not today Satan that's a good one Um, you have a black lives matter t-shirt out here so you've got some really great stuff and I see that your color scheme is really black and white and I love that as well Yep, and then I intentionally want to keep it that way forever. Like, um, I may do some special editions where the colors are inverted, but I just like this whole idea of being in black, like being dressed in it. It's just so beautiful and rich and regal to me, um, and just sort of just universal. I don't know. I think like there's this space is black and it's expansive and there's so much in it you know what i'm saying like it's just ongoing it's forever it's it's love to me i just love the color black and i just want to assert that like it's beautiful that's the whole intention of the brand yeah thank you for that i appreciate that when you when you say things like that and when you strive for that that really helps us and i appreciate that because like i say every day (laughs) As black women, as black people, if we are not promoting and um, loving ourselves, no one else will. So I appreciate the fact that that's what you're doing with your business. So what do you see as your mm, year goal and your five-year goal for your business? um. (laughs) That's like a short (laughs) idea of what you are expecting for yourself. I mean... Let me start off by saying that Black Proverbs is not even one of the business ideas that I've had. Like, I'm just a really, I've just had it my whole life. I I didn't realize until very late that I was really an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I realized that it gives me a lot of joy. Um, Having said that, I feel like Black Proverbs. Adventures. 
ultimately all serving the black community. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would like um, a specific web series um, and like mini show geared toward um, centered around black language relating to that. I mean, I would love to write that show. I also pursued a master's in screenwriting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would like that. I also love fitness. So I would love a black fitness line, like an, um, something in addition, like I told or said as well. Um, I'd like to publish my book based on the blog. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just have so many different goals um, that I would like for the business, also including like a nonprofit sector because like um service is really um one of my goals in life i feel like i always need to be able to give back and see how i can make the path wider for those behind me Mm -hmm. um because i didn't make it here by chance somebody invested in me you know what i'm saying like i also have the privilege of being just a naturally curious person um but i would like to be able to invite more people to the space to like create the lives we want, you know, instead of people handing it to us. Um, so scholarships specifically for black students um, and also just more ways that I can give back in terms of like helping other people start businesses and um, investing in their ventures. Mm, that's so dope. <laughs> I love that. Um, so tell me um, what you beyond T-shirts and your coffee mugs and your pillows I see here. Um, do you have some new things coming out? Oh, yeah. In another week, I'll have shot glasses. I'm so excited oh. about those. Mm-hmm. Um, I designed them over six months ago, mm-hmm. and I forgot that I put on one of them, Let Me Talk My Shit, and I'm really excited about that one Like, because I say that a lot. Like. <laughs> <laughs> for real let me talk my shit like because i know i let me get this off you know what i'm saying like uh <laughs> i'm really excited about that um and it's gonna be set sold in a four set so okay i think people will really enjoy those um and then by the end of the year we'll see like i'm really hoping that i can um have a capital to be self-published um yeah, I just want to keep growing and set it. Well, good luck to that and to you for all that. I really think, um, I really wish big things for you, you know. So um, tell people about how they can get in touch with you and how they can look at what you have available for them to purchase. Awesome. So um, my website is at, uh, God, I'm only doing the social media. <laughs> My website is blackproverbs, B-L-K, proverbs.com. Um, so it follows all the social media, Twitter, at blackproverbs, Instagram, at blackproverbs, um, Tumblr, the same, tumblr.com slash blackproverbs. Uh, if you want to see the blog, there's all sorts of things. Um, all those go back. They're all spelled the same, B-L-K, proverbs. Okay. All right, was there anything else that you wanted people to know about you before we, you know, end the call? Um, you can also reach me um, on my personal social media at Mad Diane Can. Uh, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, you're absolutely giving me life today. Thank you. I mean, you know, 
I also say like rational Diana won't, but Matt Diane can like piss me off and like watch what I can do. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, yeah. I'm gonna show <laughs> bet on me type <laughs> of things. Um, <laughs> but I would love to talk. Like um, I love talking to other people. I've collaborated with a lot of other businesses. Um, um, having cross um, promotional photo shoots. Um, I've collaborated with dancers, with artists all wearing or doing something with Black Proverbs gear um, that you can find on the site. So I love talking with other businesses. I love talking with other people. Um, I'm nice. <laughs> so you can so reach out to me. <laughs> uh, and we can talk anytime. It's all right. Thing to do. Well, thank you for joining me. It's been a lot of fun. I wish you nothing but the best for your business. Thank you. Thank you. Can I shout out my friend, Lana? Absolutely. Uh, please. What's your Black woman shout out? Um, my friend Lana at Hunter Gather Her. She's a dope artist producer. She produces all of her music and sings over it. Um, she's oh, wow. just incredible. You all should check out her music and her okay. art. Okay. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Thanks Great. for joining thank me you. today. This is fine. <laughs> <laughs> so my guest today is Brooke. She wrote a book called Book of Addis, Cradle Embers, and um, it's an excellent book. I I love the book from the very first page. Brooke, are you there? Hey, yes, I'm here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining me. So, Brooke, tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, sure. So, I am an author and uh, an editor, and that's... Uh, uh, what I do with my time. <laughs> what would you, what would you like to know? Well, a little bit about who you are, like, um, why you became an author. Tell me that. Okay. Um, so I was actually, I was working at a law firm in DC, um, doing communications and, um, it just, I, I was writing for other people. Um, I, I'd spent the uh, majority of my career after law school, you know, crafting other people's thoughts um, and, and breaking everything down into, you know, something that was digestible for the public, um, like high concept legal terms. And and um, I, I really just wanted to find my own voice. Um, I really wanted to say something for myself and for black people specifically. And I, um, you know, it was around, I guess, 2009, 2010. Um, there was a lot of hype around like the Hunger Games and things like that. So I just I like to read, you know, what what people are talking about. And I read the books and I, you know, I, I enjoyed them fine. But it was more like the, the conversation around these books. Um, like, wow, can you imagine if something this terrible ever happened in real life? And I'm like, you know, has anyone heard of slavery? <laughs> um, right. That happened. Um, and it was not great for the children. So, you know, I um, I started to think about um, the ways in which we're allowed um, to talk about dystopia and that, you know, white dystopia is often um, things happening to white people that were done to black people first. Um, and so I just I really wanted to focus on that. I wanted to center um black people in a story. And, um, you know, so that's, that's why I, I wrote, I started to write 
fiction um, as opposed to at the time I was, you know, doing a lot of nonfiction writing. Um, and also I had a, a blog where I was, you know, talking about, you know, it was a, a personal and lifestyle blog. Um, so I was doing a lot of nonfiction writing, but through fiction, I just started to think about the ways in which, you know, you can reimagine the world and things can happen in fiction that didn't actually happen in real life. But by writing it down, by creating it and then putting it out into the world, you know, it, it exists in a way that reality exists and other people can join you in that reality, you know, when they're reading the book um, and how that impacts them and how they, you know, may make different decisions with their own lives, you know, like that, that reality is now uh, real, it's, it's, it's tangible, and, and other people can participate in that with you. So that's why, you know, I, I wanted to um, write this book. And, um, you know, it's the first of a three part series. So uh, I really wanted to kind of create this world so that we can all just live in a different one, um, particularly now when things just really, really suck in America. Um, and there's nowhere you can go. There's no place you can go where you're not going to be persecuted. You know, uh, there's not going to be a place where um, their anti-blackness doesn't exist. Right. So um, in yeah. this, you know, series, I guess there, there are these people who constantly are, are fighting anti-blackness, not only from the outside, but also within themselves. And through that kind of path of healing, like hopefully the reader can go on that journey um, to filter out anti-blackness as well and and bring, you know, some of these, um, you know, fictional um, ideas um, and, and occurrences and, and bring them into actual world. Okay, that's interesting. So when I read your book, I found your book to be compelling from the very first page, right? Oh, uh, thank you. From the very first page I was in. But it's a tough read. Let's keep it real. We lived a tough life. Do you know what I mean? And um, but it's also a um, I found the lead character to be powerful and um, um, interesting and um, She's full of, of, uh, she has her problems as well, but she's a woman that I respect and I uh, adore and I understood where she was coming from. And so one of my, one of my questions about the book is now this character could have been done at any time period, right? But you chose the time period that you chose. Why did you choose that time period for her? Yeah, so just to, I guess, give some background um, for listeners about what the book is. Okay, perfect. Um, so Addis is a 17-year-old um, enslaved girl. Um, she's been enslaved to the uh, first president of America, mm -hmm. and um, she uh, escapes from him and is able to start a revolution. Mm -hmm. um, and so I chose, um, like, 1790s timeline um for the story because you know like you said things you know it, it could have been any time mm -hmm. um you know a lot of uh of things that happened during slavery the repercussions of that we still feel today um that's generational trauma that you know black people in this country still carry and so i thought you know how can i i was uh it was 2012 when i started writing this book how can i you know heal 
from something that I didn't even have a part of, you know, like they, there's a, a saying, all the women inside me are tired. Like, it's like, there's generations of trauma that have been passed down. Um, and so I'm like, I'm dealing with things that don't even belong to me, you know? Sure. Um, and so I thought, you know, you got to go back, uh, to the beginning. You got to go, you can't have an America that is healed. That is, you know, uh, that is living up to, you know, all of its claims, uh, uh, until you go back to the beginning and you fix what was done there. You know, we can't, um, it's like trying to reform the police, right? You know, like it was created to snatch black people from freedom and put them into slavery. Like there's no reforming the police, you know, you have to start over. Um, and so that's, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go back to the foundation of America as a country and, you know, try and fix it and, and look at, you know, the revolutions that happened around the world um, and what made those revolutions successful, what made Haiti's revolution successful and try to put those conditions into America um, in 1790s and, and just go from there. Yeah, the story about Addis is, um, it's heartbreaking and it is beautiful. It's outright beautiful. And I loved, one of the things that I loved is that you made, you made some decisions in this book that um, when I've read other books about this time frame that they haven't made, one of the decisions that you made or one of the things that you did in your book was to use their native tongue. So the way that they spoke back in that time frame. Whereas a lot of books that I read, you know, they speak like how I speak right now, which is unreasonable and, you know, come on, ridiculous, but it makes for an easier read. So why did you decide to use the native tongue? I found that interesting. Yeah. And so even um, in the books um, that are about slavery or enslaved people, mm-hmm. um, it will be written by a third person right it's it's written by a narrator who can write in english mm-hmm. uh, in standard english and then maybe the dialogue between characters will be just the vernacular mm-hmm. but i chose to have to write this in third person but also to have that third person speak the same language as the enslaved people spoke because i wanted to make sure that the reader knew that the lens was different you know this third party narrator you know is not some you know person outside of the community who's like observing them you know from a distance um you know the the narrator is often the god of the universe of the book sure. and so in this book you know the god of the universe is black and is a part of this community and understands their language and is trustworthy you know what i'm saying so like there's um you know, I looked at a lot of uh, slave narratives mm-hmm. and um, in many cases, you know, slave or inform, formerly enslaved people who were working, you know, with abolitionists to tell their stories. Um, it was often written by or, or validated in some way by a white person, you know, mm-hmm. uh, just so you know, this is true. I'm standing here and, you know, I'm writing the foreword to this book or they'll write the whole thing. Um, and, and say, you know, this is, um, because, you know, the enslaved person wasn't able, um, to read or write. And so I wanted to make sure that this was just a different, you know, thing, not just because one is fiction and one is nonfiction, but also because there is no white validator, you know, um, there's nobody saying, 
that there's nobody that needs to come along and say, this is a true story. You know, this, what's happening here is, is true and you can trust it. You know, um, you're going to listen to, uh, the black characters who are going to speak for themselves. You're going to listen to the people in this community who are going to speak for themselves. And, you know, you're going to have to accept it as the truth because there is no person that's going to come along and reassure you, you know, like there is no, uh, white savior in this story at all. And that was intentionally done. Um, and also, you know, I talked earlier about this journey of filtering out anti-blackness that the, that Addis goes through as a character. Mm-hmm. Um, some other characters um, go through that journey as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going through that journey when I was writing the book. And so, you know, I, I had been, uh, you know, indoctrinated, you know, my entire life, you know, to speak proper English. And what does that mean? What is, what is, proper and what is improper you know like there can be standard english but you know the way black people speak you know throughout the diaspora whatever language you know was put upon them um you know we've taken that and we've made something beautiful out of it you know we combine what we're able to uh, recall um just even rhythmically um from west african languages um and you know we we just we're creators we create our own thing and it's just it's beautiful it's poetic and that's what i wanted to uh show by writing in the vernacular um with this book and having the narrator you know speak in vernacular um so that that was just it was really important to me to see you know the beauty the beauty and the poetry um in the way that black people speak and that it can be just as poetic, it can be just as valid, it can be just as proper as any other form of English. So there's, it's a, you know, there are multiple reasons why I chose to do that. And, um, you know, I, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I, I hope more people um, enjoy that as well. That was definitely um, a hindrance to me getting uh, published in the beginning um, so yeah, so I'm just, I'm glad that I, I did not go back and, and write it in standard English because there were several people who wanted me to do that, but, um, or, or publishers that, that wanted me to, to go back and rewrite it in standard English. And that just was not something that I was willing to do. That wasn't, you know, the intention of the book, um, was not to be palatable to a white audience. Um, it was to tell the story of, um, of these enslaved people and, um, to, to feel like, you know, I had done some research and really connected with, you know, my ancestors in, in, in writing this book. And, you know, if people enjoyed it, that would be great and that would be wonderful, but there was not going to be any compromise as far as, you know, making it, watering it down and making it, um, accessible to people who may not be interested in the story otherwise. Well, let me be clear. I thought it was dope that you did that because even though this is a fiction book, it made the story much more, um, realistic and, um, it validated, it validated who they were much more to me than if you use proper English. And, um, as a woman from Alaska who grew up around no black people, uh, trust me, I understand the, you know, need for quote unquote proper English. Um, but, um, and, and the struggle with it as a woman of color, you know, the things that people say to me, if it's, 
if I'm around white people, then I speak, uh, what is the word that they use? Um, they love the way I use proper English, which infuriates me. Uh, and then if I'm around my people, it's you speak white. So I understand the juxtapose between the two. Do you know what I mean? And I love the way that you let them speak in their own language because it was much more authentic. It was just, it's just much more authentic that way. It doesn't, it, it it does mean that when you read it, you, because you're not used to that language, you have to, you know, take your time and read the story and sometimes go back and read that page again to make sure you understand what happened. But I loved it. So I just wanted you to know that part. Um, So let's talk about some of the, um, the things that you have in the book itself, because I kind of want to, I want to uh, talk about every bit of your book. I want to talk about what you put in each content section, uh, some of your acknowledgments, and then some of the characters. I don't want to give the story away because I want people to read this book. I think it's important for us, especially as black women, to read this book. But I do want us to kind of go over some of the things that uh, I thought were important. Okay. So when I look at the contents of the book itself, um, in the prologue, each one of your contents really in one sentence, you're able to give a good idea what was about to happen to the character. So I'm going to read the, um, the prologue. The prologue is no one attends the home going of a suicide, which (laughs) the story of, of, of Dido, right? the prologue and you use the word suicide which I found interesting so tell me a little bit about that not too much but tell me a little bit about that and who Dido was and who Dido was yes so Dido um starts off the book she is um grandmother to Addis the main character um and uh through uh, this uh head injury that Addis has um, as a result of, you know, trying to protect her dying father, um, you know, she's she's able to have these visions and dreams and this very spiritual connection, very similar to what Harriet Tubman really had in real life. Um, and so mm-hmm. through these like dreams and visions, she's able to connect with her grandmother, Dido, and see what happens um, to Dido. Mm-hmm. And so in this prologue, um, Dido... Um, has found out that her um, 12-year-old daughter is being molested by their master. And so she, you know, takes two weeks um, and comes up with a plan with her brother. Um, and she, uh, she, she wants to basically stop their master from uh, molesting her daughter. And of course, in this time, um, you know, she is property and her daughter is property. Her daughter isn't even her daughter. Um, you know, it, legally, uh, they all belong to this man. And that means that the man can do whatever he wants to do with any of them. So she's already, you know, on this path of um, deciding that, you know, she's going to take some agency. And when enslaved people take agency, you know, that could be considered suicide, mm-hmm. um, whether you're trying to run away, whether you're trying to, um, you know, even just, you know, breaking the tools that you're supposed to be using in order to say, you know, I can't I can't work today. You know, the tools aren't aren't working or, you know, um, 
when I was at Monticello recently, um, we were learning about how the enslaved people there would uh, claim to lose blankets so that, you know, because it was so cold. So they would have to, um, the uh, overseers would have to give them more blankets because they lost their blankets. Um, and, and that was, you know, a lie, obviously, but it was also a way to get more blankets into, you know, their communities so that they could stay warm in the wintertime when it was freezing cold in those cabins. So all if you're lying, if you're stealing uh, materials, if you're stealing resources, if, you know, you're uh, trying to escape, uh, anytime you try to take agency as an enslaved person, you're risking your life. Um, and so that's why, you know, I um, I thought, you know, suicide was um, relevant to this chapter of these people who are trying to choose agency and how other people look at it. Um, you know, that it can either be lauded or it can be, you know, there can be this kind of anti-black defeatist um, attitude that can occur in the community as well. Like, why would you do that? You know, why would you try to um, get out of this situation? Why have, why don't you just accept it? Like I have. Um, and, why are you or, making and, waves? Yeah. Why are you making waves? Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, you know, it, it's, it's again, you know, anti-blackness is something that we are all socialized with. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's something that we all have to filter out. Um, and, and be able to identify first um, and then, you know, figure out a way to heal from that and, and get that out of our system and our way of thinking. And that takes a long time. So, you know, yeah, it's 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 possible that when you try to step out of out of line um, that, you know, you will you could be rejected. By your community, by the people that you're trying to help. Um, so it's just all something, you know for all of us to consider. And wouldn't you say that we still go through that today? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Like there's so much um, about the things that are happening in this book, you know, um, just misogynoir, you know, for one, and and even the tendency, internalized misogyny, where, mm -hmm. um, you know, Addis has this issue with her mother. Um, like she she just can't, um, connect with her mother. She doesn't respect her mother because her mother is an enslaved person and she's an enslaved person as a result of her mother. And so, you know, it's, it's the ways in which that we blame mothers and judge mothers, black mothers in particular, for the problems of the, of the black community when, you know, it was never the black mother's fault in the first place. But, you know, legally, uh, children were considered enslaved based on the status of their mother. So we have this whole like socialization that trains us to be against our mothers, that trains us to judge our mothers more harshly than we would our fathers. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's definitely, there's so many issues as a result of slavery that still exist today. And so, you know, hopefully there are a lot of themes in the book that are, are, uh, that people can identify with in present time. I definitely want to talk some more about Taddy, but I, I when I talk about what, what's happening today, like, for instance, the Black Lives Matter movement. So you have some people that support the Black Lives Matters movement, right? And we talk about it and we try to get the word out and we want people to fight, you know, our oppression that we're in at this current time. But there's still plenty of black people that 
that shit on the Black Lives Matter movement, right? Because yeah. they feel like, oh, why don't you just be quiet? What you're doing isn't helping. Um, yeah. You're going to get us killed, you know, and, and, and those type of attitudes and thoughts uh, are reflected in this story as well, because you have characters, you know, in this book that are like, you know, what are you doing? Just be yeah. happy that you have a home. Just be happy that, you know, you're not somewhere on a, um, on, um, somewhere, you know, where you're out in the field, you know, you should just be happy doing what you're doing at is be like me, you know, and that, that has a lot to do with who Taddy was, but I also yeah. thought that Taddy was a protector, right? So in her own way, she was trying to protect Addis from some of the things that she went through and, but she couldn't protect her. Am I making sense? Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah. like, that's, that's what it is. I mean, I, you know, what you just said actually just reminds me of that mother in Baltimore during, um, Oh yeah. That she was happening. hitting her kid. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, and, and whooping her son for being involved in the protest. And so, you know, it became this public spectacle where white people and um, even some black people were praising her for doing that, um, for shaming him, for trying to be a part of, of, uh, you know, protests to bring about change um, in Baltimore. And, you know, the, it's, it's about survival, really, mm -hmm. you know, like, that's where we learned, you know, we, we beat our children to protect them in a, in a very sick way, you know, like that's, you know, we, we harm our own kids to prevent other people from harming them. You know, exactly. if they learn that this behavior is bad from us, then they will go out into the world and they'll behave in a different way. But the reality is, as we've seen with Tamir Rice, as we've seen with Ayanna Stanley Jones, as we've seen with Rikia Boyd, you know, there's so many people, um, there is, uh, Philando Castile, like, you don't have to be doing anything wrong to die by the hands of the state. No, you can just, you can name them all. Absolutely. Yeah. And so we think that there's this uh, way we can negotiate our blackness, right? You know, we think that if we um, pull up our pants and, you know, don't litter and some, uh, some other things Don Lynch and Don Lemon was mentioning, you know, like if, if we act like people deserving of respect, then people re will respect us. And that's never been the case. We are people who, who deserve respect because that's we right. exist. Like exactly. that is enough. You know, you can wear your hoodie and walk down the street and still be seen as a human being by people who are, you know, compassionate, empathetic humans. Um, so it, it's not what we're wearing. It's not the way we speak. It's not how much education we have or don't have. Um, you know, those are all you know, intraracially, those are our class issues, you know, um, uh, those respectability politics um, that make us feel like it just makes us feel better. It makes us feel like there is a way that we can protect our children. You know, if we teach them, you know, to put their hands on the steering wheel and say, you know, yes, ma'am and no, ma'am, then they'll be safe. And that's just really not the world that we live in. So I think if we were to get, you know, busier, um, focusing on the ways to make, you know, structural institutional change as opposed to trying to change, you know, who we are uh, to limit ourselves, um, then I, I think that would be energy, you know, better spent. I wholeheartedly agree. Like, I think um, 
you, we went from a time period in the seventies where we fought for our rights. Then we felt like at least some people felt like they had their rights. So now just be quiet and, and, and walk a straight line and, you know, keep your pants up and don't talk back to people and you'll be fine. And now we're living in a world where we see, no, all that was wrong, you know, and all that respectability politics was garbage. Um, they and still see us as trash. So yeah, it, it was never like that. We never went through a period where, you know, things were fine. Exactly. It's just now we have, you know, we, we have no gatekeepers when it comes to, you know, seeing, um, seeing police brutality on tape on, on a mass scale. You know, we have yeah. people who can record themselves. Um, and, and even with that, um, you know, there's no guarantee that anybody's going to be prosecuted. I mean, you're less likely to be prosecuted with, uh, with the, all the video evidence, you know, that we have. So yeah, there's just no, we're, we're more aware of it now on a, on a wider scale. I mean, I don't even think it's, it's us. I, I definitely think it's people outside of the black community are more aware of it because that was something that they could ignore or they could, and, and it's still being ignored actually. Um, you know, there's still this idea that there is no problem with police brutality when it comes to black and brown people. Um, but we have video evidence, you know, we have statistics. Um, and so, you know, people are more aware that it's happening, but it's, it's not new. I mean, it was one of the main tenets of, you know, the Black Panther Party, um, was to stop police brutality. So none of this, nothing that's happened, um, is new. And like I said, you know, police, uh, came from slave patrols. Yep. Oh, you know, there's none of the stuff that we're dealing with today is a new thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we, until we heal, um, those very, very old things that are kind of intrinsic to what it means to be in America. Um, it's, it, to be in America is, you know, to be a part of violence. Um, you know, this whole country was founded on the genocide and rape and erasure of, uh, native and black people. So, you know, you can't escape that. So until that's healed, we're always going to have this country. Uh, we're always going to live in this kind of a country. Um, those are always going to be our unspoken ideals. You're exactly right. I totally agree with that. And when I look at some of the characters you had in the story, they reflect the people that are here today. Right. So we talked a little bit about Taddy and her um, her need to protect her daughter by having her daughter do some of the same things that she went through or by ha by trying to get her daughter to follow her footsteps. Um, that is how she saw as protecting her daughter, right? Like yeah. she didn't know any other way. Um, perhaps if she put herself out there, maybe master will leave her daughter alone. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Then you have Nene. And yeah. I found well, well, I can just go back on Taddy because I, I feel like there is something there, too. Um, she and it, it reminds me of when you were talking earlier about, you know, kind of generational differences in the way that we respond to trauma. Right. Um, Taddy, when she was 12 years old, she had this mom who did do something different. This woman went out. Dido went out of her way to protect Taddy. She did. Um, and there were very negative consequences. Mm -hmm. And so Taddy grew up with that trauma, too. She knows what happens when you step out of line mm -hmm. and when you try to protect other people. And so this person, you know, Taddy grew up without a mother. So she's thinking, for one, how can I stay alive? 
And two, how can I keep my daughter alive? But also, you know, how can I, you know, what is it that I have to do, you know, to um, remain somebody who's still alive for my kid? Um, because I know the trauma of growing up without a mom. And so those choices that you make, um, you know, it can be, it, it seems, you know, cruel what, what Taddy is trying to convince Addis is okay. You know, it seems cruel to have this scene of her, you know, explaining why she just needs to go along to get along. But she is trying, I mean, that, that is the best that she can do at this time. And so when I think about, you know, our parents who may, you know, be critical of the Black Lives Matter movement, they saw things that we didn't necessarily have to see. I mean, right. there was uh, definitely more, uh, well, it's, it's coming back around now, but I mean, there were, there were definitely uh, times where it was more blatant, um, you know, as in not being able to uh, drink from the same water fountain, be in the same spaces as white people. Um, and there's a lot of segregation that continues today. But I mean, that's traumatic. And so I kind of, I try to have these characters in the book so that I can, I guess, express empathy for them. You know, the way we all are dealing with trauma the best way that we can. And it sucks with, when the way that you deal with trauma is harmful to other people who are traumatized. Um, and we need to fix that, but also just understand where it comes from. Um, so that there isn't any, you know, generational like hatred that's happening, um, that there is some some empathy that for for those people and for what they went through, um, even for like, you know, the Stacey Dashes and the uh, Ben Carsons of the world. You know, what do we do with them? Um, you know, those people exist in the book, too. Like, do they get to come along for the revolution or, you know, what what happens to them? I, I thought that to me, Taddy was just about survival. Which yeah. is, you know, she just wanted her daughter to survive. She just wanted to, you know, make sure her son survived. She just wanted to survive. Yeah. And, 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 and why not, you know, with that type of, of thought process of, of course, you're going to um, be more amenable to the things that maybe I find horrendous and gross. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. All she wanted to do was make sure her daughter survived. And how can you blame a mother for that? You know what I mean? So yeah. I res I respected Taddy, but on the other side, I was like, oh, my God, Taddy, what are you doing? Like, I was yeah. going back and forth. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, she was going back and forth, too. She yeah. doesn't, you know, and I, I feel like, um, yeah, that was the main point of that was just to show that everybody is doing the best that they can do with right. this. Like, this is not ours you know, we didn't cause this trauma. Right. We didn't cause this generational trauma. We did not create the circumstances that have harmed us so tremendously. Um, and so the way each of us handles trauma is going to be different and it's going to be problematic and, you know, it's going to be messy. Um, but if we can give each other some grace, um, if we can try to, you know, get to the root of why we're making the decisions that we're making, um, then hopefully we can have some community healing there. And if you watch the journey of Addis and her mother, because I'm still talking about Taddy at this point, mm -hmm. if you watch her in the beginning, she really hated Taddy and, and didn't understand why Taddy was doing the things that she did. In the yep. end, she came to a better understanding of who Taddy was even before the very end. But like the, 
um, when, you know, she moves and she meets a new person called Sabine, she starts to understand who her mother truly was and how she never gave her mother a chance because she saw her from one position. You know what I mean? Um, But that doesn't go away. You know, like even it, it, she's had, you know, 17 years at this point to, well, I guess, so she was uh, five years old when um, she was separated from her mother. So she's had about 12 years to kind of, you know, ferment this hatred for her mother. And that doesn't, you know, she gets some understanding of her, but that's, that's something I think that she, you know, is going to continue to carry. Sure. Sure. All right. So we talk a little bit about Nene or Nene. Sure. So tell me, I saw her as a, um, if I was to use her as reflection of people that I see today, I saw her as somebody who um, loved Addis, of course, um, but understood why Taddy did what Taddy did and didn't want Addis to judge her mother for the yeah. decisions that she made and yeah. wanted Addis to um, kind of back down from the hatred she had instead of, and instead respect Taddy for the decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Or just her humanity, you know, you don't, you don't have to, like, I don't respect Stacey Dash's decisions or Ben Carson's decisions. You know, like, I I don't respect their decisions. I respect that they are human beings that are dealing with trauma. And I think that was the point that Nene wanted to get across to Addis that, you know, you, yeah, just what I was saying earlier, you know, that these are, we don't, we are not in complete control of uh of our circumstances and we're making we're making decisions for survival there are plenty of black people who you know once they get out of their situations they will booker t washington it up like you know pull yourself up by your own bootstraps like i did even though that's that's just not the case at all you know you look back through these people's lives you see you know the random blessings that they had that other people weren't able to get which helped them to uh get to where they are um, so, you know, it's, there, there are just, there are plenty of people in the community who think that the way to success at ideal, um, it's about accumulating things and, and money, um, and, uh, therefore, you know, social status. It's about getting into these certain, I guess, clubs um, that will allow you, I guess, to negotiate your blackness a little bit. And they think that, you know, it, it helps. Um, it, it helps if you really believe that this is the way to do things so that when when other people are being brutalized, you know, when other people are um, being oppressed, you can say, um, well, you know, that's not my problem. You, you have no it, it helps you to release responsibility for being a part of that community. Um, if you can just say, well, it's an individual responsibility for you to take care of your own life and you can completely ignore the systemic uh, issues that are, are, you know, intrinsic to living in this country um, as a black person. Um, and so, yeah, so so um, Nene doesn't want Addis to come to that conclusion because Addis isn't out working in the field. She's working in a garden, which is a, a status thing as well. She's not inside the house. But, you know, she's not, you know, she has the shade of trees to work under. She has just a very specific job to do. And that can, you know, separate her from other people in the community. Um, and and that's something that Nene doesn't want to happen. 
So, you know, she, she's trying to instill in her this idea of, you know, respecting the journey that people are on with their trauma um, and not to be someone who was full of, of hate, um, even when hate is appropriate, um, even when that is a, an appropriate response to trauma, uh, Nene doesn't want this child that she loves to be uh, so burdened down, down, not just physically, but also, you know, emotionally enslaved um, and controlled by uh, people outside of herself. I think that especially when it comes to uh, uh, valid feelings of hate, do you know what I mean? Like um, there's a section in the book where uh, Addis was able to eat a peach. And I thought about that, like that wasn't normal (laughs) to be able to, to be in an area of the garden where you weren't watched at all times and you were able to eat something. It it seems really small to us. Right. But you were able to eat a peach in peace and quiet without any repercussions. That just wasn't the life of a regular slave. And so Addis did live a, a, a quote privilege, more privileged life, perhaps than yeah. people in the field. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so for one with the peach, I mean, she she definitely stole that peach because, oh, yeah. you know, that she doesn't own the garden. So that that again, I, I really wanted to get to this um, myth that black people just accepted slavery tacitly, you know, like, and it's black people's fault that slavery lasted as long as it did. It was just something that, you know, everybody just accepted. And that's just not true. Even if it was stealing a peach, you know, and eating it, um, you know, and holding on to the seed to plant in your own garden, that was an act of rebellion. That was an act of war, you know? And so, uh, I, I also wanted to get to this idea that, you know, there was a good kind of slavery, um, you know, like that, you know, people who lived in the house or people who had who weren't out in the fields, like, you know, yes, there is a privilege there. That doesn't mean that the slavery that they experienced was good or better in, in any way. You know, there's no good version of enslavement of another human being. Um, it's it's inherently cruel. It's inherently disgusting. It's 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 not something that is OK. And so, you know, when people, um, what's it like Bill O'Reilly and um, some other people on Fox News, when Michelle Obama made that comment about, you know, living in a house that was built by enslaved people. And, you know, Bill O'Reilly had this whole segment on his show about, you know, how the the enslaved people were fed and housed and, you know, they they got some, you know, they got some benefit, I guess, out of being forced to build this White House. Um, yeah, I mean, it just, you know, even in modern times, there's, there's a persistent myth that, you know, slavery was somehow good, or that there was something, you know, useful that came out of it, whether it was, you know, white Jesus, which is another theme that's dealt with in the book, or, or a place to live. I mean, you know, the West Africans that uh, white people stole and brought to this country, they had places to live. They were, li- they had families, they had their own languages, they had their own cultures. Um, you know, there was nothing that, you know, West Africans needed that was lacking that they could find through enslavement in America. It's just a completely ridiculous and dehumanizing 
uh, ignorant argument to make. And so I really wanted to get to that. I wanted, you know, Addis to be in this position of privilege to show that there is absolutely no way that we can accept a good kind of slavery. Like it doesn't exist. There's no such thing. Not in the world. So, you know, on the back of that, let's talk about, and he was only in the book for a short amount of time, but mm-hmm. I found his character really interesting. And I'm talking about Basil Lee. So that's oh, yes. um, Addis's brother. If yeah. you'll talk a little bit about who he was. Sure. So he, um, he is a do- He is the son of Taddy and, uh, and it's a product of rape between, uh, uh, their, uh, the president, uh, who is their enslaver, mm-hmm. and Taddy. And so he's in this, you know, weird situation. Um, he has not ever been publicly claimed, obviously, by his father, um, though he does receive some uh, benefits. Um, there is this idea that Taddy has that because he is a member of the family, um, of the, the president of America's family, um, that he will somehow be protected. She actually has two sons um, who are the products of rape. Um, and uh, she believes that they are safer than Addis is. Um, for one, because they're boys. Um, and so they're, they're, there's an idea that they will be safe from sexual harm. But there is even, you know, a mention of the fact that, you know, a nearby uh, enslaver, um, actually very routinely uh, rapes uh, male children um, on his plantation. Um, so there is actually no, there is no escape. Like there is no, there's no safety. There is no, um, you know, automatic protection, um, even being related to the enslaver. Like that's, you know, there, we think that, you know, the closer we are to whiteness, whether in, skin color or by behavior um, and culture that there's safety in that, you know, like that's where respectability politics comes from that we were talking about earlier. Um, it's proximity to whiteness. The closer we are to whiteness, um, the closer we are to being accepted, you know, to being brought into the family. And that's just not the reality. So that's something, you know, basically is a child. Um, so I, you know, I, I give him, uh, a break for you know thinking the way that he thinks sure. but um you know there's just that's it's an it's a lesson for for adults really um for for teenagers and adults alike you know proximity to whiteness is not going to save you it's just not not ever and the 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 moral of his story is it's it could be just as lethal right oh absolutely yeah um yeah, so I wanted to talk about that a little bit. So let's talk about who Sabine is. Because I found her character interesting. Because, right, you know, she's dealing with massage noir. Massage noir. I always yeah. have a hard time speaking that. Um, and tell me a little bit about her. So um, there's this uh, portion of the book when Addis and her mother travel with um, Birkin, their enslaver, who is the president. Um, he's going to Philadelphia. And so, you know, he's set up uh, to run the country uh, from Philadelphia and he's able to take some people along with him. And um, his niece, Sabine, uh, lives in Philadelphia as well um, with a husband that uh, her fa- her uncle 
uh, Birkin arranged for her to marry. And so she uh, is a very, very wealthy uh, white woman who is connected to uh, the first president of the country. Um, And, you know, but she tries to use her white privilege um, to help enslaved people get to freedom, whether that's by, you know, buying them uh, or doctoring free papers or paying somebody to doctor free papers for them. You know, she's kind of kind of helps along uh, the, you know, the Underground Railroad of their time, basically. And um, but she also, you know, she she's got, you know, some white savior issues um, that she's going to have to work through. And she's you know, she gets checked repeatedly by people um, because she is just not aware of the reality that, you know, like she is like the, the typical, you know, white liberal feminist. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. She, you know, she she considers herself an ally and mm-hmm. she has good intentions, but mm-hmm. she's just also very just harmful in the way that she thinks about the world and the way that she thinks about her role in the world and in, in the movement. Um, and so, yeah, she's just kind of hopefully a lesson for allies in, you know, not centering yourself um, and not trying to make yourself the hero of somebody else's story. Exactly. Exactly. You know, staying in your lane. I mean, I think that she had some great intentions, Yeah. but sure. the way she went about it um, consistently was way too much. And, yeah. um, you know, it, it reflects in her story as well. So I like, yeah. I like that part of it. I mean, she very much was a white liberal, like yeah. <laughs> to the T, like you wrote that just like, <laughs> well, I had, I've liberal. had a lot of experience right. <laughs> with white feminists. So yeah, she was absolutely as she was absolutely a white feminist. And, you know, it was, I love the reaction that Addis had to her um, initially and even, you know, later on in the story, but her initial reaction, she wasn't here for Sabine. Um, And I also liked the way that um, some of the other characters that came into play a little bit later in the book reacted to her. Um, I found it interesting that even in her story, you know, she's a white woman. She was basically sold into marriage. She yes. wasn't, it wasn't like as if she wanted to be there and yeah. I found her story interesting. And then how her, her husband never saw it that way. Like I just, it amazes I mean, me. It's a sign of the times though, too. And you know, yeah. like patriarchy, um, you know, it is, it's always been in this country, uh, since the foundation. Oh, and sure. so, yeah, you know, there in that, you know, white women are oppressed by white men. But the thing is, you know, so many, in order to protect their whiteness, in order to protect their privileged status, um, are are just complicit. They are, um, mm-hmm. you know, a part of the conspiracy of white supremacy. And so, you know, even, you know, your oppression alone by white men does not, you know, unite all of us, um, you know, because if you're using your position... Um, you know, if you, if you don't want to end, I guess the, uh, the, the privilege that you have, if you're not willing to sacrifice that, um, for everyone else's greater good, then you're a dangerous person and you have to, 
prove your trustworthiness and and no one should trust anyone who wants to maintain the status quo and so a lot of abolitionists actually who didn't believe that slavery was okay but they also didn't believe in being neighbors or married to black people you know it's not like okay you know well they're not animals but like are they human i mean so so there's that that element too so you know just because people wanted to end slavery does not mean you know that they were gung-ho about uh equal rights or or considering um black people to be you know, fully human or as human as they are deserving of the same things they were, you know, so it's just, you know, it that's just liberal white people um, of their time. Um, so, you know, you have to, uh, I guess, just figure out, you know, who is trustworthy. If you're not down for, you know, completely overhauling this racist system, you know, if you are attached in any way to your status, to your privilege, um, and not willing to sacrifice that, then you can't be trusted. And that just kind of goes for everybody. Yeah, I um, and to take it back to what's happening in these times, look how white women did the election. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like, you know, this guy is talking about grabbing women's pussies. That should be enough mm-hmm. for you to back away is the racism that he exhibits. That should be enough for you to back away. But instead you vote for someone that's going to help you keep things the way they are. And you did that to be complicit with the white men in your life. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, that's uh, when we consider, you know, who our allies are, you know, that's just not really a term that I believe in. And Addis is also very skeptical of that, you know, Mm -hmm. um, when she sees this woman who's like, you know, I'm on your side. We have the same struggles. Like, no, we don't actually. And I don't know that you're on my side. And if, you know, like there is a distrust there that is warranted, you know, um, if 53% of white women voted for Trump, like I'm looking at every one of y'all, like, I mean, cause my chances are one out of two. Like I, I absolutely, how, how am I supposed to trust that, you know, this is a, you're a safe person for me, you know, like you, there has to be some history here. And and even with that history, you know, you get down to the, there are people who are, have been losing friendships that they've had for 15, 20 years, because there were things that they just didn't know about that person. I mean, I, I definitely remember a time, you know, uh, I, I overheard uh, a, a friend of mine, a non-black uh, woman of color, um, I was I was in her house and, and she was talking to another non-black uh, woman of color on the phone and they were just like throwing the N-word around to each other. And then my friend was like, oh, no, we can't say that. We've got a real nigga right here. Oh, good Lord. And oh, oh. I was like, I've known you for oh. years. We have been best friends. Like, you know, I have gone to law school like I have all these things you know in my life and that are going well I'm doing well you know I I'd speak standard English like and you still consider me a nigger like so that to me that was my wake-up call like oh so I can't actually negotiate my blackness and you know that's not that's not something I will ever be able to escape in this system, um, even, you know, with, with non-black people of color, this is not necessarily a safe space. So that was a very, you know, a wake up call that I had very young and it just, it, it definitely shaped, uh, my, 
my ideas around uh, respectability politics and and kind of began the process of me releasing that, um, you know, as an ideology that I, I mean, I, I certainly was a champion of it when I was in school because um, that, that's just the way we were socialized. Um, so, yeah, you know, like we we have to, we just have to be careful. We have to be really careful and understand even that, you know, we're all, we've all been socialized with anti-blackness. And if we're not actively every single day trying to combat that, if we're not actively trying to filter that out, it's going to seep out of us in some way, whether it's the way we think, whether it's the way we talk, whether it's the way we respond uh, to somebody else who's going through trauma, you know, we'll be like, well, what were you wearing? Well, you know, why didn't you just leave? Like all those kinds of things that, you know, perpetuate, um, whether it's rape culture, whether it's, you know, systemic racism that we're perpetuating or in, uh, uh, internalized racism that we're perpetuating, um, if we're not actively working on that, you know, it's going to cause harm not only to us, but to other people in our communities. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I definitely believe that people are can be well-intentioned. People can want to be allies. But, you know, you're going to have to consistently uh, be working to prove that. I mean, I don't know. Did you were you able to watch um, Henrietta Lacks last night? I didn't HBO? get a chance to. No, how was it? So Oprah is phenomenal. Um, mm-hmm. I actually got to interview her for this uh, movie on Tuesday, so I just was the highlight of my life. Like, um, and she's just she's she's phenomenal in this film. Um, but there is this relationship with the white woman who actually wrote the book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, and the daughter of Henrietta Lacks, um, Deborah, and how they just have a very, you know, uh, this white woman is trying to write this book, and she's not really understanding why she can't get, you know, these black people in this family to cooperate with her in, in writing this book, and how, like, I'm trying to help you, I'm trying to get your mom's story out, but yeah, you're also going to make a whole lot of money off of this. And, um, you know, that has been the reality of the people who uh, stole their mother's cells in the first place. Exactly. You know, Um, and then even those same doctors who stole her mother's cells, you know, came to her, came to Deborah Lacks and stole her, you know, told her she was being tested for uh, cervical cancer, which is what her mother died of, Um, you know, and her brothers were being tested too, supposedly, um, even though they don't have cervixes. Um, But, you know, there's been so much, you know, theft and, uh, you know, lies. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Or from the from the white community, not only the medical industry, but um, also just growing up in, you know, the South in the 50s. So this white woman is like, you should just trust me, you know, and fuck you if you don't trust me. Like, no, no, you you if you want to work in this community, if you or for one, you know, why are you working in this community? Why aren't you going to your own community? Which is something that was told to Sabine, you know, why don't you go to white people and talk to white people about slavery? If you have a problem with it, you know, like, why are you trying? Why to- are you here? Exactly. And why should this, I trust you? Yeah. Yeah. This is weird. We're doing what we're doing over here. Why don't you go in your own community and sweep in front of your own door? You know? Um, and so that's something that, you know, she's, Sabine has to deal with as well but mostly I just wanted to make sure that there was no white savior in this story Um, that you know there were so many black people there were so many enslaved people who were you know 
rebelling on their own. They didn't need a white person to come in and tell them, hey, you know, you deserve a better life. Like they knew they deserved better lives, you know, and whether it was beaten out of them or, um, you know, they're, they're I mean, living in terror every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, that can change, you know, that can change a lot about who you are as a person. And that's what happens to Taddy as well. And Addis is a younger person. She's dealt with trauma um, for just a less amount of time than her mother has. And I think maybe as you get older, um, you know, you, you do accept things more easily than you did when you were younger um, because it's just, you've been conditioned for so long. So, you know, it was important to have a young person who, uh, who wasn't fully, uh, even though you're socialized from birth for, with these things, but I mean, there's still this, just this idea um, that hasn't been beaten out of you yet, um, that you deserve something better. And then when you come into contact with white people who, you know, want to, you know, run your story, you know, to take you basically from one master to another master, mm-hmm. um, one white savior um, to another white savior, that you can be resistant to that. But you can say, like, no, this is not what I want for my life. This is not what I want for my people. Like, uh, you know, and we don't need this. Yeah. We don't need to tell us that we deserve freedom. We know we deserve freedom. Exactly. And we don't and, need you to save us and, yeah. and be the, the person who thinks that they, that you are now in charge, that you've made the decisions on my life or that you've made that type of impact on my life. I'm sick of white savior stories. It's it's yeah. so played. It's so played. And beyond yeah. that, like you, you know, what they're telling Sabine is save yourself, you know, like, you are whiteness is complicit, you know, like you are uh, responsible. This is damaging to you, too. And we see that also with the character Haynes, who is an overseer. Yeah. You know, he's a cutter. Um, he deals with his own trauma by cutting himself. Yeah. And so that is just really, you know, a metaphor for what racism actually does. Like you think it's your privilege. You think it is helping you to have a, a better life. You are being poisoned and you don't even know it. You're drinking it willingly because you think that there is some privilege here that makes you better than other people, makes you have a better experience than other people. And so you're not willing to challenge it. But the reality is that you are killing yourself just as much as you are killing other people. And so it's your responsibility to save yourself. Go, you know, talk about, you know, find out what whiteness is. I think there's a very good article you know, on the establishment that's asking uh, white people to examine whiteness. You know, you don't need to understand black people better. You need to understand white people. If you understand white people, then you understand how so much, you know, trauma has been inflicted on people of color throughout the world. If you understand that, then you can do something about that. Then you can challenge that. But, you know, if, if you're, you continue to be ignorant about whiteness and what white supremacy does not just to you but to everyone else then you can actually be of use in the movement like you can play a role in the movement um and and you can you know be combating whiteness directly as opposed to i guess combating you know whatever whatever blanket um issues that you think uh you know it's not it's not my blackness that's the problem it's you know, your whiteness. It's not my black womanness that that's the problem. You know, it's like you whiteness. can stay focused. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. your whiteness. Yeah, I mean, the election really. Um, there was a lot of people that separated after that election. A lot of people. You started to see who they really were, and yeah. um, I think, you know, with your book, Sabine, 
she was able to see who Sabine was from the moment she met her um, because she didn't have interactions with white people like that. So she already came, you know, with the the side eye that I think black women are born with. Um, When it comes to because I I keep trying to juxtapose what's happening now to what's happening in your book. Mm-hmm. And, you know, during the election, like I, I, um, I had some friends that I knew for years, I mean, talked about our lives, you know, um, loved each other. I loved their family, um, went over to the house, had a blast with them, shared drinks. And I never forget after the election, she now never said any of this before. It wasn't until after the election when she felt comfortable enough to say it, but she said, well, I'm glad that Obama is out of office because we let him have this time. We let him be in office. So now it is our time. I never forgot that. It was the word let that really yeah. threw me under the bus. And I feel like um, white allies is a terrible term. And I, I, ha- I just have a hard time trusting white people. And I really have a hard time trusting white women. Like, I already look at white men one way, but white women, I really have a hard time dealing with. Um, so I, you know, now I go back and I examine all my relationships with white women, you know, yeah. and how they talk to me and the things that they've said. So, yeah, I, I totally get where you're coming from and where Addis is coming from in the book. Yeah. And so there's even a white man uh, who is, you know, he's been a part of uh, Mm, the movement in Moreau, like, you know, for since he was a teenager, you know, he's been around, you know, in this black community, um, accepted in this black community in a way that Sabine is not accepted. Um, And, you know, I think, yeah, I, I don't, that may be a little misogyny as well, why he has an easier time mm-hmm. than she does. Um, but all it's been different because he was much younger when he was accepted into that community. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, there is just this inherent, you know, distrust of white womanhood. Um, because there's there's just been too many examples of uh, of white women who, you know, are just are just so complicit in, in keeping this system um, and, and can be more more dangerous. Because, again, there's this, you know, idea of, you know, white women being these fragile, you know, delicate, uh, harmless mm-hmm. uh people, and, and through that they can cause so much damage Um and, and can even be worse, um, you know, like we saw in, you know, Solomon Northup's story, um, you know, 12 Years a Slave, they have, you know, white women uh, were causing, you know, black women to be beaten. They were doing the beatings themselves. I mean, even so uh, Taddy in this situation in the book, um, you know, she is she's burned. Um, she is put under a flame mm-hmm. by um the enslaver's wife um, who was jealous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was jealous because, you know, the enslaver's wife can't have children and Taddy has had two kids and by, by, you know, 
uh, even though it's rape, you know, that's that's something that you know the enslaver's wife you know is upset by and jealous of, and she causes her physical harm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this you know idea that you know white supremacy is limited to you know white men, but even if you look at these historical photos of black men and women and children being lynched, there are white women and children there as well. Pardon. You know. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, during the civil rights movement, exactly. um, you know, when Ruby Bridges is trying to get into school, you have white women spitting on her, white women holding up signs, yelling in, and and being a, a roadblock. So, mm-hmm. you know, like there's just too much history um, to just accept, you know, white womanhood as, you know, as as something to be allied with, you know, like even as a woman, like. We're not the same. We don't want the same things. You know, we're not on the same team. Um, womanhood is not enough to connect us because you don't see me. It's not. As... Yeah, it's not enough to connect us, clearly, because yeah. if it was, we would be in a different place. Exactly. And you would well, act yeah. differently. Those, you know, that's yeah. the thing. All those white women turned on Hillary. Um, right. You know, <laughs> right. Her own people turned on her. That is just, it's amazing to me. It's, it's, it's insane. Just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's insane. So um, now I found that your book had a lot of twists and turns. So I thought that was really cool. Some of the people that you thought were on Addison's side probably weren't or on the side of the enslaved black people weren't. And some people that you thought weren't on her side were. So I thought that was a really good take as well. Um, and I imagine that is just how life is. You know, yeah. Um, the people yeah. that you think are in your corner really aren't, and I, I love that part of your book too. Yeah, and it's just like, um, just in revolutionary situations, or you know, even within the Black Lives Matter movement, like there is just a lot of contention that's happening. You know, there's a lot of, uh, yeah, even you know, with the Black Panthers, you know, Cointel Pro, like there. <sighs> There, you don't know who you're supposed to trust. And that's kind of the point. Um, that is kind of the point of um, putting dissension into into these movements um, so that everybody's paranoid. Everybody, you know, if you're all paranoid, if you can't trust each other, then you can't get anything done. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that that is just kind of intrinsic to, you know, revolutionary movements that there's just going to be, um, you know, the, you're just going to feel like there is, you know, there's, there are people, uh, who you can't trust. You can't trust with everything you can't trust with your life. And so if you have one person that you can hold on to, like, you know, Addis feels like Equeme, uh, uh, is the one person, uh, or Equema is the one person that she can fully trust. Um, you know, this is her lover, this is her love. And even that person is not necessarily someone who is going to tell her 100% the truth. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, we're just really out here kind of alone. We're going to have to go by faith um, because you just never know. You just really never know who is actually on your side um, and who is on your side up until the point until it's between you and them. Yeah, you're totally right about that. And I think that's just how life is. Yeah. You pray that your faith in this person won't get you killed. Yeah, basically. Real talk. Uh-huh. All right. Um, so something exciting just happened to you. Um, and I really want you to talk about it. 
Oh, yeah, okay. So, um, <laughs> I just, um, found out that I won, um, the Black Caucus of the American Library Association's Literary Award for Self-Published Fiction. Um, and that was just a really amazing, um, honor to get, um, particularly because this book has been so rejected by so many people in the publishing industry. Um, and it was, you know, a large part of the reason why I decided to stop shopping my book to traditional publishing and to publish the book on my own through my own press. And so for, you know, such an esteemed, you know, organization as the Black Caucus of the American Library Association to recognize my book, to even to recognize self-published works in general, I just think is such uh, a big deal because there are just so few um, literary organizations um, that do. Um, there are so few um, literary prizes that uh, allow self-published authors to even enter mm-hmm. that space. And so, you know, I'm winning my award alongside Jacqueline Woodson for Another Brooklyn. Um, you know, so she won for traditional publishing and fiction. Um, and so like to, and there's going to be a really great ceremony in August that I'm looking forward to in Atlanta. Um at the National Black Librarians Conference. Um, and so just to be in the same space as those people, as, you know, Clint Smith, uh, who won for poetry, and um, uh, Margot Lee Shetterly, who won for Hidden Figures for nonfiction, um, you know, to have all of our books in the same spaces, like, it's just, it, it's extremely validating. It just, you know, you you never know if you're going to self-publish whether this is something that's going to be worth it. It's going to be 100% of your own time and energy and effort. It is that much harder to get people to pay attention to you, to get media outlets to write about you, um, you know, to to get people to care in general when you don't have the validation and the backing of a, a major publisher. Well, congratulations um, are absolutely in order, honestly, because your book is fire and you yeah. deserve whatever is coming your way. Truly. Thanks. Yeah. Now you said that your book is part of a three part series earlier. Yes. Okay. So is your book actually out for people to actually purchase? Yeah. Yeah. The first book is out now. Um, um, I'm working on the second book um, Mm -hmm. and that will be out in February, 2018. Um, Yeah. So I'm hoping, you know, every year um, to, well, maybe every other year. Um, to release these next uh, two books in the series to complete the series. So I'm very excited about, about that and, and to continue on in this journey with these characters and um, to, to see how it goes. I mean, like there were so many stories um, that I came across in my research that I had never learned in school. Oh, um, yeah. You know, I, I now have multiple degrees, mm-hmm. uh, never, you know, and studied, you know, black culture and, never heard the stories um like the story of oni judge that's the black woman i want to shout out by the way i want to shout out oni judge who was the inspiration for um addis as a character oni judge was enslaved to george washington Mm -hmm. and uh, while they were in philadelphia um after she had served uh george washington and martha uh, their dinner uh she escaped out of the back of the house and she never came back and she, you know, remained free for the rest of her life. And, um, you know, they, he uh, pursued her relentlessly 
until he died. Uh, he stopped pursuing her maybe two weeks before he died, and no one ever came after her again um, once he once he died. But I mean, he actually enacted the Fugitive Slave Act to get her back um, mm-hmm. to to make people, you know, turn over. Uh, people who were formerly enslaved but have now found freedom. Um, he created this law so that to force people to return uh, people to slavery and and for Oni Judge specifically and for her children, uh, the children that she had had um, after she escaped. Um, you know, he, he wanted to bring all of them back to him. And uh, she was protected. She she maintained her freedom until the day she died and was able to tell her story to journalists on two separate occasions. So, you know, this woman, I, I just wish that I had known about her, you know, as as a younger. I mean, I found out about her totally by accident. Um, this is not somebody who is heralded. You know, when I'm when I'm learning black culture, you know, we have the you know, greatest hits, basically, you know, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, you know, uh, et cetera. And, and that's, you know, this story of Oni Judge, you know, which just was never told to me. And I just thought about, I created Addis, you know, as somebody who defied the first president and lived to tell about it because of Oni and thought about what, how much of a difference that might have made um, to other enslaved people if they had known there was this woman who defied the most powerful person in their nation and was able to live and tell her story. Um, you know, so I, I wanted that to be something I wanted to bring that story to life in a different way and to give, you know, more enslaved people an opportunity to know that story um, in my fictional world and have that have a huge impact on them. Yeah, there's so many of our stories that are either erased or, you know, only our great, 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 great grandparents know about it and it's talked to or it might be journaled somewhere. So, yeah, yeah. I love that story. That's a I didn't know anything about her. So thank you for enlightening me like that. Of course. Yeah, she um, there's actually a book out right now um, that's all about Oni Judge. Um, it's a nonfiction book. Um, uh, I can't remember who the author is, but um, they just did a profile on it uh, and and the author, the black woman author um, in the New York Times. So, yeah, there's definitely uh, people are, are learning more about Oni Judge specifically. And, yeah, it's a great story. It's a, a great part of our history. OK, I'm going to look into that. Now, I know that we, um, before I let you go, I wanted us to do some book recommendations do you have maybe a fiction and a nonfiction book that you can recommend for people? So the thing is, I have an entire syllabus that I would like to recommend. Um, <laughs> if you go to bookofaddis.com, mm-hmm. I have the book of Addis syllabus, which has like everything that I used um, to help me oh. formulate um, your this story. Book. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's nonfiction. It's fiction. There are the museums that I visited. There's the music that I listened to, you know, and it's all kind of broken up by, by topic too. So I have books, you know, um, on reproductive, reproductive justice and the politics of black, black motherhood, massage noir, destructing, deconstructing white masculine ideology and reimagining black masculinity. Um, the power of writing and speaking in the vernacular, black protest and revolution, the history of Africans in America and Igbo and Yoruba culture. Um, so there's, there are all the things that I, I use broken up by those topics on my syllabus and you can download it. 
um, or just, you know, everything's hyperlinked too. So you can, um, you know, click on that and, and find out how to, how to read these resources, um, or listen to the resources, uh, the playlists and things like that, that I made. Um, but as far as recommendations specifically, um, the book of night women by Marlon James, um, really shaped this book for me. Um, I wanted to write the book in the third person, but I did not think that I could write in the third person and also write in vernacular. I had never seen it before. You know, I didn't think that that was possible. And then I read Book of Night Women and uh, Marlon James does exactly that. So it's it's not necessarily third person, but it feels like third person. And so that, that just felt like, to me, gave me permission to write this book. Um, in vernacular in the third person. And it's just a beautiful book. It's um, about enslaved women in Jamaica um, and the rebellion that they try to have there, um, similar to the Haitian revolution, um, but with, you know, varying results. Um, But it's a very beautiful, very powerful book. Um, So that's fiction. Mm -hmm. And did you have any... Hmm. Because I can certainly uh, refer people to your website because um, it sounds like as if you've got some great resources there. Oh, there's a ton. There yeah. are there are a ton there. Um, uh, hmm. Well, while you think about it, I'm going to give a couple of mine, okay? Oh, great. Um, so there's a book called At the Dark End of the Street by Danielle McGuire. And it really is about, it's about black women and some of the things that we went through um before the civil rights era uh and it's a lot about uh it's a lot of the stories that we won't normally hear it's not a again it's it's a tough read um if you're a human being it's a tough read because some of the things that we went through as black women but i found it to be very triumphant and um it enlightened me on some things i didn't know because again i grew up in alaska so you can imagine the type of education I got on my black history, much less yeah. as a black woman, um, which is, you know, equates to zero. And I'll be honest, my parents really didn't talk about it. Um, so I, I find myself at my age just hungry for information about who I was or who, where I came from or the type of women that I would have been in that era. And I found that book to be really interesting. I also liked Angela Y. Davis, Freedom is a Constant Struggle. And it still is a struggle. That's a great book. I love that one. And then another one that I recommend is Sister Citizen by Melissa Perry. Um, And that's a really well-written book as well. Uh, It's written exactly how she writes, I mean, how she talks. And I love that book as well. That's another one of my recommendations. Did you think of the nonfiction one? Or I can just recommend people to go to your site if not. Definitely go to the site, but mm-hmm. I mean, the fire next time um, oh. is is everything. James mm-hmm. Baldwin, um, that one. is just that. There is uh, in the beginning of that book, there is this. Um, he's writing a letter to his nephew, basically, and he's basically telling his son, uh, his nephew, that you know he was created to be loved. Like, I mean, that did something to me. You know, like just there's just there are so many uh messages that we get as black people 
um, from a very young age, basically that there are things that we have to do in order to be loved, in order to be respected, in order to be considered human. And he just tells his nephew, like, no, like all of those, all those messages that you're going to get, um, you know, that you're, you may be getting them right now, um, because socialization starts from birth. So, you know, no matter what you're hearing, no matter what you're saying, like what, what may be said to you, um, you were created to be loved and to be sheltered from the harm that's, that's in the world, the evil that's in the world. You know, you deserve that. And, you know, it may not happen to you. You may not be protected from those things, but you, you are inherently worthy of that. Um, and I just think that that's, you know, it's, it's such an amazing book, um, for people who are trying to heal from the, from systemic racism, uh, from, from the impact of that. Um, and, and just trying to, to filter out anti-blackness. Again, that is one of the main goals that I had, um, not just for the characters in my book, um, but also for myself in writing the book and for the reader as well, that they would go on this journey to, to filtering out anti-blackness and the fire next time, you know, definitely helps with that. Um, but there are also, you know, a ton of, um, uh, of slave narratives that are on, on the list as well that were written by the slaves themselves. Um, you know, uh, the interesting narrative of the life of Oluwadu Equiano, um, who was an Igbo, uh, enslaved person, um, in what is now the UK. Um, just that's a, a beautiful story. And I, I learned so much about, you know, uh, about, um, you know, what it was like for him uh, to be enslaved, you know, outside of America. Um, cause that's, you know, we, what I love about freedom is a constant struggle and Angela Davis in general is her focus on globalization, you know, is her focus on how our struggles are interconnected and we have to start looking at our struggles as global and not just local, you know, like what is, uh, you know, you know, the, the chance from, um, Black Lives Matter, uh, marches, um, you know, from, from Ferguson to Palestine. Like you have to see how all of these things are, are connected. So, you know, looking into, um, Equiano's life, um, and, and how, you know, his, how his struggle mirrors, uh, what was happening in the Caribbean, what was happening, you know, in America, um, you know, and, and seeing how connected our struggles are and that until we start connecting our struggles, until we start seeing how uh, how inherently intertwined our struggles are, we can't actually be free. You know, we we can't we can't look at, you know, what's going on with immigration and say, you know, as black American citizens that it doesn't impact us, you know, because our Somali brothers and sisters are being deported at, you know, astronomical rates right now, you know, right. like our black people in America. And, you know, yes, they are Somalian, but that is our struggle, too. And we need to be on the on the front lines for them as well. You know, so once we start um, understanding uh, the global nature of these struggles, um, then we can start to actually have uh, to dismantle these systems um, and have some widespread change. Yeah, you made some great points there. So the book is called again, Book of Addis, Cradled Embers. Where can they find your book? So you can uh, buy Book of Addis, Cradled Embers um, at bookofaddis.com. Um, you can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it on Barnes & Noble. Um, it's, it's on Kindle um, as well if you want the ebook. Um, you can go to any Barnes and Noble, 
and ask them to order it for you. Um, you can go to your library and ask them to order it for you. There are a ton of ways um, to get it. Um, so yeah, that's that's how it's it's out there. Where it's for you, uh, wherever you would like to, wherever you'd like to get it. Perfect. And then, how can people get in touch with you? So I, the best way is through my website, brookeobie.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at brookeobie. That's O B I E. Um, so yeah, all of my social media, uh, handles are Brooke OB. So yeah, please reach out. I love getting emails and tweets and Facebook messages about where you're at in the book. Um, that's just like my favorite thing or pictures of you with the book. Um, I'd love to put that up on Instagram too. So yes, definitely send it all my way. Mm, Well, thank you so much for joining me. I absolutely adored your book. I can't wait to read it again. I need to read it a couple more times. Um, But I hope that everyone really got a good idea of how the book is written and the way that you, you know, put your love and sweat and tears into it. So I thank you again for joining me. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. So I wanted to basically end the show with um, some options for you as a black woman. And then I wanted to talk a little bit about a video that went viral. So first, I wanted to to give you some options for um, something different to use other than Shea Moisture. You know, I'm a little late to the game because, of course, I don't do this show um, every week or so. But I I do know about the whole Shea Moisture controversy and the commercials they made that were really um, disrespectful. And so I wanted to give us some options because... You don't have to go to a company who basically leaves you in the dust when they start making real money. Um, You don't have to pay for a product that doesn't appreciate you as a consumer because there's so many products out there that we have access to as natural black women that we never have to deal with that type of shit. So I wanted to give a list of some of the products that I thought um, that I know of that are in your local stores. And then I also have linked a really good article that gives you a bunch of different companies that cater to natural black women. It's so different than when I first started being natural, when there was basically nothing, you know, no products on, on the market. But now there's so many products out there that you never have to deal with somebody treating you in a way that makes you feel terrible. And I really did not like the way that Shea Moisture basically shit on black women, you know, who were the ones that built that company from scratch. And, you know, keep in mind that while you may not be familiar with these companies, if you go to YouTube, which is our Mecca, and just type in the name of the product, you can find so many reviews about each of these companies. You can find what type of hair it works on. You can see how they worked it in, you know, the whole nine and try these out for yourselves. The article also has a bunch of different websites. So you can click on the website, of course, read the reviews. So you just never feel like you have to deal with the type of stuff that Shea Moisture was shoveling to us. So here's some of my list. Um, Of course, like I said, that article is much larger. All of the products I'm going to mention are actually in your your major stores like Sally's or CVS or Target or Walmart. So you don't have to go to a beauty supply store to pick them up. 
I'm going to start with the ones that I know I love. Um, Kinky Curly is a really good line. They have something called Not Today. That's a leave-in conditioner. And then Curling Custard, which is also really good. Um, Talia Wajid, I've been using her for years. She has something called a Protective Mist Bodifier, which is fantastic for you know, your braids under your weave, or if you're wearing crochet braids, or if you have a toit or a puff, it's just, it's a really light uh, leave-in um, mist, and your hair feels fantastic afterwards. But there's some other products that I've heard of that have gotten some really great reviews, like Camille Rose. I know I've seen that company in CVS, and they have an Almond Jai Twisting Butter I heard was really good. Um, the Curls line, I've seen that in multiple stores. They have a Blueberry blueberry Bliss line, which includes like a hair mask, a growth oil, twisting cream. Um, Eden Body Works, I've seen that in Walmart. There is a Coconut Shea line that has a hair mask and a curl defining cream. Um, Oyen Handmade is another company. They have a Juices and Berries Leave-In and a Burnt Sugar Pomade. I know that they are in Sally's. So like I said, you know, there are so many companies out there that cater to us. So um, use them, use them. It, you know, it's no different than the women that I want, you know, to be on Secret Sauce. Use the companies that are here to cater to us. Okay. But next, I really wanted to send a shout out to a young lady named Issa Jordan. Now, she um, did a video on Facebook that went viral and it was about a joke that was made on the Ricky Smiley show. The Ricky Smiley show, if you're not familiar, it's a nationally syndicated morning talk show um, where he and a bunch of friends get on there and they make jokes or what have you. I don't think he's funny, but, um, and he's from out here in Atlanta, but he's a pretty huge show. And he said something that she really didn't like, and I'm going to let her explain it in her own words. So I look a hot mess because I'm not a morning person at all. My face is ashy, all right? My voice is a little deep when I wake up, but um, never mind that. I want to talk about something that I just heard on the radio while I was in the car. Now, I waited until I got back home because I didn't want to be driving and fussing. Um, so, yeah. Every morning, I get up and I listen to the Ricky Smiley Morning Show. And I'm a huge fan of Ricky Smiley. I love me some Ricky Smiley. He lost um, a fan this morning. And I'm going to tell you why. I understand uh, his comedic views. Like, I understand where he comes from with, you know, his jokes that he tell. But um, in 2017, the way shit is going amongst black people, one of the jokes that he said this morning took it a little bit too far for me. And it was completely just out of nowhere, which made it even more unnecessary because it, it has to deal with dark-skinned black women. And they seem to always be the butt of jokes. And... Regardless of my skin tone and me being lighter, I'm still a black woman, all right? So my job is to defend black women, no matter what shade they are, when they are being attacked and ridiculed for no fucking reason. 
the joke went as such completely out of nowhere because he was doing his paternity test Tuesday uh, thing on there. He says, just just completely out of the left fucking field, um, a dark-skinned woman walked into my kitchen the other day and my skillet started laughing. They started giggling. And I'm sitting there in my car and it hits me, okay, he's making the analogy that the girl is so damn dark that his black skillets are giggling at her skin shade. How the fuck is this funny at all? For one, you're implying that being dark-skinned is something that's laughable. It's something that should bring a giggle or two for someone to be dark-skinned. It's in no way, shape, or form fucking funny. And I am past tired, especially, especially of black men ridiculing our black women. I'm fucking tired of it. I'm done. And people look at me crazy because I'm not even dark-skinned, no. But I have dark-skinned nieces, dark-skinned nephews. My older brother is darker than me. You're not going to keep knocking our people as if black is not beautiful this is the bullshit and the main reason why black women have the lowest self-esteem it's because our black men do not even fucking support us y'all talk all this shit about us and then when we break and try to change our appearance you fuck around and talk about that too well damn it's bad enough that our our skin is mocked and made fun of by white people, we turn around and our backbones, which is our men that should support us and stand up for us, y'all turn around and fucking talk about us too. Where the fuck does that leave us? And y'all wonder why black women, all oh, black women are so horrible to deal with. They have attitude problems. They bullheaded. They act like they too strong. We have to because majority of our men are bitches and pussies and don't stand up for us. Matter of fact, they're the ones that bash and knock us the fuck down. I'm pissed off that a celebrity of his stature would say such a fucking thing. Especially since he has brown-skinned daughters. But I guess they're not that bad because they're not that dark. Uh, Ricky Smiley, I hope somehow, some way, this video reached your ass and you recant what the fuck you said. Because that shit wasn't funny at all. I got a couple jokes for your crackhead looking ass, but I'm not going to go in on you this morning. Because, I, look, I'm from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I could burn your ass alive. I could damn near take your job if I got on your ass, but I'm not going to do that. I just want you to apologize to every dark-skinned, beautiful woman and little girl that's already going through hell because of her skin color. I want you to personally apologize for the bullshit that you said this morning. I'm, I'm going to go and sit down for my blood pressure get too damn high. System, do you see black people at the So, yeah, uh, shout out to you, mama. Um, I am a dark skinned woman and she's right. We're always the butt of jokes and it gets super old. Uh, first of all, that joke wasn't funny. <laughs> Let's start with that. The joke was... A dark-skinned woman walked in my kitchen once and the skillet started laughing. Uh, yeah, no, that shit was terrible. Um, 
Ricky Smiley is black as hell. I don't know what even inspired him to say something like that. So, yeah, shout out to you, mama, for doing that. And so I decided, you know, (laughs) for jokes, for shits and giggles, I guess, to go to the comments section because why the hell not, you know? Let me see what's going on in that comment section. She has almost 10,000 comments. And I'm just going to take out a few of them. And I'm going to say their names because they said some ignorant ass shit. So I'm going to say their names because they said it. And I'm just reading what they said. All right. So Joe Johnson, this is his comment. And you trying to get likes, bitch. You ain't even black. Let me stop right there. She is black. She's just lighter skin. You the only fan he lost. So what? He's a comedian, jackass, LOL. All this shit he say and that joke makes you not want to be a fan. Fuck out of here. Okay. Let's go to another one. This one's from Noble Chuck Jr. Girl, go to sleep. It was a joke. He wasn't bashing. It wasn't even a topic, which was her exact point, dummy. You just too damn pro-black to see when good fun is in the air. Can't stand you revolutionary ass people always making something about race. Our people have bigger problems. Stay focused. So let's just go with those two comments. So the first comment, he's telling her to shut the fuck up. Yeah. The second comment is, uh, don't care about what you're saying. It don't even matter. Right. Which is the same thing that they're always saying to black women. Either shut up or your topic isn't that important. So it doesn't matter. My personal favorite comment was from someone named Kali Young. Why do dumb hoes want to start shit? All y'all did was prove her point. That was exactly her point. Black men are forever shitting on black women. And I don't know why. Ricky Smiley could have made that joke about black people. He could have made that joke about a black man. But a black woman is way too easy to attack. When I look at her responses, those 10,000 responses, 90% of those responses are from black men telling her to shut up, telling her that she shouldn't have said it only for black women. She should have said this for black men. Y'all are really the problem here and you just don't see it. You don't get it. You know, we're tired of being the butt of jokes. We are tired of being told that we're less than, and we're really tired of being told that our feelings don't matter. So, fuck you to Ricky Smiley. Fuck you, especially a big fuck you to all those dudes that took the time out their day to make a comment on this young lady's post. And shout out to you, Issa, for looking out. Another black woman looking out for black women. I love it. Thank you so much for listening. Your support means everything to us. If you have feedback, something you want to discuss, or you own a business you like to promote, please contact us at bwsbusiness at mtrnetwork.net. Remember, you are beautiful, you're brilliant, and you're bad as fuck. Support another black woman today. Bye.